Hello and welcome to the Oh God What Now Arms, our combination pub, nail bar and hairdressers. We're looking to capitalise on the latest round of unlocking in England, but this approach does mean that we're fully booked until July 2023. I'm your host, Naomi Smith. Minnie Rahman is Campaigns and Comms Director at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Minnie. Hi, Naomi. So uh, the JCWI has contributed to a story we see in Wired all about the Home Office database that apparently holds uh, the information of 650 million people. So I guess my, my question to you is, why, why do they need the details of 10 times the number of people who actually live in the UK? <laughs> it's actually such a good question. In classic home office style, I think the answer is your guess is as good as mine. So I think that the whole point about this database is that it's extremely secretive. No one has any idea how they've collected the data or what data it holds. They, The Home Office hasn't shown why it's necessary or proportionate, and they haven't told us what kind of safeguards exist for the people who are on the database. I think my best guess at the 650 million number is that it will hold information from the border and on visas and visa applications. So that potentially includes um, people who've been refused a visa and a lot of data on tourists as well as migrants. Great, just what we need. More reason to give people not to come to this country. Ian Dunt is editor at large at politics.co.uk and author of How to Be a Liberal, just in case listeners hadn't already clocked that. Hello, Ian. (laughs) Hello, hello. Now, Ian, the government kind of infamously, if you like, shut down Hillary Ben's EU Future Relationship Committee, sometimes referred to as the Brexit Committee in January. And the Bill Cash EU Scrutiny Committee has been allowed to continue. But um, I've got wind of some extremely clever, brilliant, attractive people that have set up an independent commission to scrutinise the EU trade deal. Can you tell us a bit more about it, please? Yeah, and thank you for being so objective about that. I really felt you came to a very dispassionate appraisal. The UK Trade and Business Commission, I mean, established by um, someone called Naomi Smith. So in fact, what I think I'll do is, if at this point I can just, it's unusual for this program, but I've brought in a secret guest called Naomi Smith, and maybe she can answer your questions. Oh, hi. Hi, Ian. No, hello. Hello. That's <laughs> what, what is this commission? Why did you set it up? What does it do? Well, we got pretty incensed by the lack of scrutiny in Parliament, uh, honourable exceptions, of course, to people like Emily Thornberry and Rachel Reeves, who are doing their best to provide some shadow scrutiny from their benches. But essentially, the, the TCA was signed and has had very, very, very little parliamentary scrutiny, if any. Uh, there is now sort of no formal select committee mechanism for that. And then, of course, there are all these other trade deals that Liz Trust is signing. Those are going, you know, almost entirely unscrutinized. And we know that business is suffering. We know that uh, businesses are now having to deal with all sorts of red tape. We've heard all of the stories about disruption to supply chains, etc., particularly small businesses, but big businesses as well. We know that services were not um, accounted for at all, really, in the TCA. So we thought, well, I tell you what, let's just do something about this. And whether it makes us kind of like the indie stage of Brexit or not, who cares? Let's just pull people together. But let's not just make it cross-party parliamentarians. Let's also bring in those business voices as well. So the commission has got lots of business voices, key industrialists from across lots of different sectors. It's got every single Westminster party represented, uh, including the DUP. 
and the Conservatives, and it's going to be taking live evidence sessions starting on Thursday, the 15th of April. So for Patreon backers, as this goes out, and for everybody else, uh, it'll have happened the day before. And then it'll meet every fortnight taking evidence from different sectors, different parts of the economy, different parts of the UK, to come up with some really forward-looking, solution-focused things to improve trade uh, between the UK and Europe and the rest of the world as well being very mindful, I think, of our carbon footprint as well. So uh, that's kind of like the long and short of it, um, but really keen to know what you think of it. Good idea, bad idea? Yeah, no, I mean, well, I think, uh, you know, it's easier for me to talk freely about this project if if you leave. So I think we should say <laughs> goodbye to our guest, Naomi, and then hand back to the host, Naomi, after a short period. I thought she was a very good guest, by the way. Thank you for having me. The commentary on this, I mean, obviously, you know, Naomi isn't in a position to say this, because as we know, she's been very... um she would really refrain from making any forceful comments on Brexit as to whether she thinks it's a good or a bad idea. <laughs> but it, I mean, it's, you know, we've had this thing for a while of, you know, the first rule of rejoiners don't talk about rejoining. This is now me talking. But it seems like the, what that was part of was to slowly build a narrative towards greater, closer, more intimate relations between the UK and the EU. And you can't do that if it's all just rejoin, rejoin, rejoin. Instead, it's got to be, this deal isn't working. How do we fix it? And every single time that you ask that question, I would predict, who knows which way the commission will go, but I would predict that most of the time when you look at the brute reality of the situation, you will go closer towards the EU. And that makes the debate easier for us to have in the 10, 15, 20 year period that we're going to be trying to go in there. So this kind of project you know, there's more to do. There's much, much more to do, especially on things like culture and especially on, on finding messages that speak to people's heart in a way that I think that we've really struggled to do in this side of things. But this of just looking at what's not working, finding proposals for what does and doing that on a cross-party basis, which commands respect and support, seems like a really important initiative to me. Thank you very much. Well, I didn't think it had anything to do with you, Naomi. It's the other Naomi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thanking on her behalf. Thank you, thank you. Um, okay, so this week we're also looking at the unfolding crisis in Northern Ireland with our special guest, Amanda Ferguson, who is a freelance journalist based in Belfast. Amanda's work has appeared in the Sunday Times, the Irish Times, the Washington Post. She's been on BBC, RTE, UTV, LBC, if there's a three-letter news organisation, and she has done <laughs> work for them. Welcome to the podcast, Amanda. Thank you for having me. Now, things, of course, are incredibly serious in Northern Ireland, um, but real life does have to go on somehow. And unlike uh, here in England, the pubs, as I understand it, aren't quite reopened yet. The stay-at-home order has been lifted. Is Northern Ireland looking over at us, piling into, you know, weather spoons at 8am with envy, or are you all staying very patient? Definitely the, the envy side of things. It feels like we're on the naughty step because we haven't got our dates yet for, for the pints. And uh, we should find yeah. out very soon uh, what our dates are for pubs reopening. And, you know, I, I was looking at the one of the, the breakfast channels and there was a group of four girls in England having breakfast pints. And I just thought that's the spirit. <laughs> Well, this week, as well as events in Northern Ireland, uh, well, it's just our luck that Ian and I would be booked onto the show on a week when a senior royal passes away. So we will be taking a look at what Prince Philip's death means for the future of the Constitution, respectfully, of course. Plus, in the extra bit exclusively for Patreon backers, like the filthy capitalists we are, we're discussing what shopping means for the post-pandemic world. Do we have a duty to get out there and save the high street with our wallets? And will we be seeing Ian and Minnie queuing outside JD Sports with their Gucci bum bags? Mm-hmm. 
before we start, two bits of news. First, our next exclusive Zoom live stream for Patreon backers will be a mega election results special on Friday, the 7th of May. It will be swingometers at the ready with a panel including regulars Alex Andreu and Ian Dunt and, of course, audience questions at the end. Because it's a Friday, we're going to do it a little bit earlier than usual, so at 6.30 for an hour so that you can start your weekend properly afterwards. Registration is free to all Patreon backers. You've got your invitations now. But for everyone else, search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast, sign up for as little as £2 a month, and that ticket will be yours. And then secondly, our long-delayed, real-life, physical, in-person live show at the Leicester Square Theatre is now rescheduled for Tuesday, 10th of August, a mere 16 months late. If you've got your ticket already, remember they're still valid. And if you haven't got one, go to leicestersquaretheatre.com for what we promise will be the most exciting comeback show since Elvis 68, but maybe without the leather jumpsuit, although maybe I can convince Ian to wear one. The 3rd of May this year marks 100 years since the island of Ireland was split as part of the Fourth Home Rule Act. In 2021, the same conflicts that drove partition seemed to be bubbling up to the surface once more, at least partly as a result of Boris Johnson's Northern Ireland Protocol and border in the Irish Sea. More than 50 police officers have been injured, vehicles burned by loyalist rioters, and some of the worst civil unrest we've seen for a long time. Amanda Ferguson Has the violence been contained in one area of Northern Ireland or has it been more widespread? How serious it is for for listeners that just haven't been following or understanding uh, as well as you will will be on top of all of this? Okay, yeah, well, the the violence started up in the northwest in in Derry um, in a a loyalist community. It spread to, to other mainly sort of unionist and loyalist areas and then we saw the sort of the the most concerning night of trouble was in West Belfast at what would be known as an interface area so that was when the the violence kind of changed from being mainly just attacks on police uh, for there to be sort of like a sectarian element to it and I think that's when it captured the attention of the the British and Irish and and US governments. How serious it is um, it's not as serious as it has been in the past although it is deeply concerning and I think that the the young age of some of those involved uh, was deeply concerning and um, you know we, we have had various sort of periods of, of rioting in the past and and there is an element of of recreational riot to it a riot into it for some people but certainly it's not you know I, I saw headlines saying you know Belfast is burning and it's back to the troubles and that's not the case okay but what triggered it what what was the sort of the, you know the 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 straw that broke the camel's back this time Okay, well, it's a range of things that have played into the scenes that uh, we've been seeing unfolding. So I'll give you the highlights. The over sort of arching uh, thing is insecurity about the future because of the change in demographics and political landscape in Northern Ireland. Now, the Brexit protocol is a massive factor as well. Uh, I think that unionists and loyalists feel betrayed by the UK government. They feel betrayed by Boris Johnson. Uh, they feel as if their Britishness is being diminished uh, by there being a different trading arrangement for Northern Ireland. And, you know, after Brexit, I think that, you know, it was mainly the unionist community within Northern Ireland that were supportive of Brexit. Obviously, the, the main party of unionists and the DUP backed it um, and they're just really unhappy with how it's unfolding. Now, a lot of it is is legitimate grievance around the administration burden and, and some of the difficulties there are with it. But it's kind of felt that 
any difficulties can be worked out through the actual protocol. The difficulty for unionists is that this protocol is an arrangement between the EU and the UK government. It's not as if it's been imposed on them by anyone else. And while it is concerning and the distress is very real, that's being felt, you know, across the spectrum, right from working class communities all the way through the to political unionism, you know, it, it isn't an economic United Ireland or anywhere near it, which is, is what's being mm. suggested to a certain extent. And I think it's good for your listeners to know that the only way that the constitutional position of Northern Ireland would ever change is if people vote for it. Northern Ireland remains part of the UK uh, until the people would uh, democratically decide any different. On top of the protocol stuff, the public prosecution decision not to prosecute 24 Sinn Féin members over their attendance um, at uh, IRA man Bobby Story's funeral in June 2020 during the sort of severest lockdown restrictions has played into this. I think the angry uh, reaction from unionist politicians who then turned their sort of anger to the police over their policing of the funeral um, played into this. We know that criminal and paramilitary elements have been involved uh, in the violence. Their activities have been disturbed by police in recent times. There are also some perceptions around two-tier policing amongst the loyalist community. Mm-hmm. Although if you were to ask feminists or uh, Black Lives Matter demonstrators or some Irish Republicans or even anti-vaxxers, they would also claim uh, two-tier policing. And I think that social deprivation, lockdown fatigue, children being groomed by adults to to you know take part in violence and that element of recreational uh, rioting plays into it and also societal segregation uh, plays into the stuff that we saw in the interface areas so I hate to gloss over such serious topics but you know we could probably spend 10 hours going into the detail of of why it all happened. The top line being that it's multifaceted there's there's not one thing this has been building for a long time I mean obviously that funeral was 10 months ago now the pressure cooker environment of having young people been locked up for, for such a long time as well that that playing into it but I'd really like to kind of touch on that bit if if we could so obviously the Good Friday Agreement I remember you know I was living in Belfast when that was signed and that therefore betrays my age because that was now 23 years ago and the youngest person arrested so far in Belfast as I understand it was just 13 and therefore has no memory of the troubles or, or anything like that. So how are young people that, that, you know, don't remember that period being brought into this violence? How, how are they being dragged into it? Well, intergenerational trauma is a factor in Northern Ireland always, but perhaps the, the young person um, on a, on a sort of riot line isn't necessarily sort of au fait with the machinations of the EU or what the Brexit protocol means. But, you know, they do know that they're being told that their identity is being diminished. And perhaps to a certain extent, it is just young people, uh, the thrill of of being engaged in, in the excitement of violence. Uh, you know, it was really disappointing to to see and, and you know, hear um, at some adults encouraging them to be involved in that. And I think it's important to point out that while, you know, it's shocking that, that someone of 13 and 14 is involved in this kind of activity you know the 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 arrests um you know went right up to to men in their 40s and we imagine that the number of people who are going to be charged will rise in the days to come as as the police evidence gathering uh, sort of moves on slightly so you know what 
people were there for, for a variety of different reasons. So I suppose it depends. It depends who, which rider you asked as to why they were there. But, you know, some of it was mindless. Some of it was being caught up in the moment. All those things I sort of uh, spoke to you about there, about social deprivation and lockdown fatigue um, of all and the, the segregation of communities uh, all play into this because, you know, still 23 years after the, the Good Friday Agreement, we still have communities that are separated by gates and walls and, you know, children aren't being educated together sometimes the first time they might meet someone from another community is whenever they work go to work or they go to university so I think that has to change and so getting back to Brexit you know you said that particularly some people in the loyalist community and unionists feel that they've been betrayed that they're now you know subject to a different kind of agreement to the rest of the UK how is that actually tangibly felt at the moment Obviously, at the start of the year, we all saw scenes of kind of empty shelves in Northern Irish supermarkets. What, what does it mean tangibly for people right now in Northern Ireland that they are operating under a different uh, sort of, you know, agreement to the rest of the UK? Well, again, it depends who you ask. You know, it's important to remember that Northern Ireland didn't vote um, to leave the EU but it's those perhaps that supported it most who are complaining most now because of the protocol. You know, I think there was always a, a realisation from most people that there was going to have to be a border somewhere. And I think it was always, you know, it was never going to be on the land. I think that unionists and loyalists um, are, you know, are very passionate about their British identity and their British culture. And they're very into the visual manifestations. But, and but, very- but are, are the shelves restocked? Can you order anything you want from you know the, the rest of the UK and have it delivered no problem or are those problems there were some uh, issues about things like potted plants and uh you know order ordering different item, items I, I actually I ordered or my partner ordered uh computer parts and they were they arrived from Bradford uh via international mail because whoever was sending them thought that Northern Ireland was now uh, an international location so there's <laughs> been things like that you know it, it depends yeah. who you ask it's been more of a headache for those who have been burdened with paperwork, the the business uh, people, but certainly mm-hmm. there's a sense that it's it's not as bad as it was at the start of the year. And I think that one of the reasons that was it was bad was because it was always going to be a massive trading shock, you know, the, with, with leaving the EU and the fact that it was a last minute deal that we didn't really have a transition period, so businesses didn't have a lot of time to prepare. And the other thing was as well is that while perhaps some of the businesses on the Northern Ireland side were prepared, the businesses in Britain weren't necessarily prepared no. for what the new trading arrangements with with Northern Ireland would be. So it was a, it was again a combination of factors, and I think that perhaps some of the the issues around COVID and lorry delays uh, all played into it as well. Ian, um, Boris Johnson has been almost completely absent on this. Uh, SDLP leader Colm Eastwood has even accused him of showing, you know, total disinterest over loyalist violence. Do you think he can get away with this, this kind of hands-off approach indefinitely? No, I don't. We had a conversation, I don't actually, we had a conversation the other day on the podcast of, you know, what does it take to damage him? And this is in reference to the sort of Jennifer Akuri story. And, and you know, is this thing that he, he sort of has this sort of insulation against the charge of hypocrisy because he's constantly acting like he's not taking anything, like he somehow got away with something like you're in on the joke. Now, the thing is that might work for that kind of scenario. And even that I think will be tested by some of the corruption stories that we're hearing about right now. But I think, Northern Ireland is is a very different proposition. You know, if you look at Chiminda Gianetti just said something, he's a very good journalist, just said something on Twitter where he was sort of, he was looking at the way that 
you know, Boris Johnson's polling collapsed. This is a 20 point lead collapsed during the, co- the, the initial COVID period and then recovered by about seven points during the vaccination period. But that sort of speaks to something of, of Johnson's the kind of, you know, he's the fun times guy, right? When you want to feel good about things, when you want to be upbeat, you know, that you, you lend towards him. When things get serious, as they were in the first part of COVID, his decline mm-hmm. can be really quite precipitous. Now, Northern Ireland seems to me to fall into that category. It is a, a serious fucking business. And on that basis, it's quite hard to see that he gets away with it. And by the way, this is this is felt sort of quite strongly in mainland Britain. I mean, if you look at sort of YouGov's poll, YouGov put out polls about an hour ago. So this is on Wednesday. Um, and they were finding that 76% of, of Brits thought the continued peace in Ireland is important to the stability of the UK. And the numbers were about the same for Conservatives and Labour. So 83% Conservatives, 81% Labour. It's not an issue that we get the sense of like people don't really care. And in certain ways, they, they don't, right? You look, like you look at the polling, and in fact, more mainland Brits were happy with Northern Ireland leaving the UK than would be upset about it. But nevertheless, they do find that the idea of stability is important. And in that context, I think that this is an issue that can do serious damage to him. And that if it keeps on flaring up like this, and sort of touch wood that, that it doesn't. But if it does, then actually I do think that he's going to find himself in a lot of danger if he takes the approach that he's taken so far, which is basically to say nothing. I mean, as far as I can tell, I think there's one tweet. I think that's the sum total of what he's commented on about it. Now, now Minnie, as a resident of mainland Britain, do you feel well-informed on this by our media and politics? I mean, we've, we've heard those polls, so you know people clearly are concerned about violence in Northern Ireland, but do they necessarily, does the average person have a good command of the, the history that got us to where we are now, do you think? No, I think the obvious answer is no. And I definitely don't think that I'm going to be alone in saying that, you know, I, I'm no expert at all. And I think it's not just that the, the media and our kind of political class don't discuss it properly or inform us properly, but Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland is all ignored in all of our education settings. And I think that's a common trend. It's common to ignore places which have historic relationships with Britain or with empire, where kind of British interactions in those places have either directly caused conflict or have hugely exacerbated it. And then when we do look at those places um, now where conflict is occurring, that lens is completely missing from coverage. So you get this abstract sense of a place that, you know, as you kind of say, it seems like the place is on fire or that it's constantly in conflict, but with no understanding of our history and relationship to it. And Ian, you know, the governing party is, of course, actually named a conservative and unionist party. I'm kind of keen to get your view on, do you think they even still care about living up to the second half of their name? Or are they just a party of English nationalists now? Yeah, well, look, the first part is, yes, I think that they are fundamentally English nationalists. And I think if you look at the way that they think, not just about Northern Ireland, but about Scotland and Wales, when they choose to remember that it exists, I think you can see that quite clearly. Um, but there's sort of two sides to that, right? Like the first side was the Brexit side, which is, you know, Brexit became this all-encompassing thing. That was the entire function of government for five years. And on that basis, anything could be sacrificed to that machine. And when it came down to it, that included you know, not just, you know, unionists, but also the DUP, these guys that have basically literally allowed them to form a government, you know, who had been with them every step of the way. But the moment that became inconvenient for the Brexit project, you throw them under the fucking bus. However, there's then the broader, longer term thing, which is just neglect, Mm -hmm. like just 
toxic neglect and lack of fucking interest. And I think you can see that. Just look at who who've been the secretaries of state, right? Julian Smith was secretary of state. He should still be secretary of state now. He's very, very widely respected, did very, very good work, successfully sort of restored power sharing. I mean, not on his own hand, but that was under, you know, under his period. Why is he not there now? Why isn't he there now? He's not there because he had the fucking temerity to tell a select committee that no deal Brexit was a very bad idea. Like that alone, that comment alone was enough to get rid of someone who was admired on pretty much all sides. Who do they put in place? Brandon Lewis. You know, like just this this parceled up piece of human calamity. And that's the guy that they designate to it. Where was he? When, when they had to come up with ideas for, oh, what should we do about the violence? They're like, maybe we should send Brandon Lewis there, which is A, funny, because as if he could make a fucking difference. And B, shocking, because it was like, well, why the fuck isn't he there right now? Like, how, how is him actually going to Northern Ireland supposed to be like, oh, how, how, how lucky of you guys that he might deign to actually enter it as Secretary of State for Northern Ireland? So, I mean, it's just, there's that, there is the Brexit part, but there's also just that swamp of background neglect that I think informs the way the Conservatives think about and, that. Uh, and about it is not just neglect, there is uh, almost a contempt there as well. Johnson was warned explicitly over and over and over, including by Julian Smith, that, that Brexit could, you know, imperil things. He ignored the warnings and he even told Northern Irish firms to throw customs forms in the bin before imposing exactly those kinds of regulations. Is there a way? I mean, you, you said that you know he can't carry on like this, but but when might he have to carry the can for it? When might that moment come? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I can't I, I can't answer that question with any. I mean, it, it would be silly of me to even try. I mean, there is. I mean, the, the thing to look at to me is the extent of media coverage on the mainland and the form of it. Right. So at the beginning, you know, this stuff was going on for a long time before anyone talked about it. And there's lots of you know, generally, I, I get. I'm starting to get quite tired of. Everyone wanted to savage the BBC all the time. But there, but there is like a screen grab someone sent me of all the stories that were on the BBC homepage above, you know, what was happening in Belfast, you know, last week. And you're just like, I mean, that is like, as a sen- basic sense of priorities, that is very, very hard to justify. And yet, I mean, by the, you know, a few days ago, it was figuring number one on news bulletins or number two item on news bulletins. So it became much more dominant. And in fact, again, the polling today suggests the majority of people, I think it was around 60%, were aware of it. But also the manner in which it was reported. Like I saw a lot of reports and I read a lot of reports from sort of across the political spectrum and on broadcast media. And they were all referring to Brexit, you know, to give full credit, like every single one of them. And, and it is it would be abysmally simplistic. And I think Amanda has sort of outlined exactly why, you know, to reduce it to that stuff. But most of them, I think, took the right tack of saying, look, even though there are all these factors, you know, lack of opportunity, of, of, of neglect and uh, the politics, but also if it wasn't for that Brexit deal, probably this wouldn't be happening right now. So on that basis, I think that does turn the screws on him and it turns the screws on the government. It shows that in, on this case, this isn't an area where the media seem to be running away from the Brexit implications of what they're seeing. They do seem to be talking about it objectively and honestly. Amanda, I'm really keen to get your view on when too much interference could be seen as provocation rather you know as opposed to what Ian's saying which is that there's just been this like completely hands-off approach and and almost neglect you know Michelle O'Neill has said that the Irish and British governments have a hands-off approach to the peace process where where do you think the balance needs to be struck and has any British government ever really got it right? Well there's a sense that you know the Stormont politicians have to sort of pull up their big boy and big girl pants and get on with the business of devolved government themselves but I think that it's obvious whenever intervention 
is required from the British and Irish administrations. You know, the, the British and Irish governments are co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement. And whenever it's becoming clear that, you know, there's a crisis of some description, it is incumbent on them to become involved. You know, what we're seeing um, commentary coming from the US government on what's happening, you know, concern being raised. So I think that whenever you have, you know, Micheál Martin saying that he would like there to be a sort of summit of, of some description uh, with the British government, they should perhaps be taken seriously. But we know that while British-Irish relations have improved greatly um, over the last number of decades, that Brexit has been really damaging and bruising to that. While the Stormont government is the main sort of uh, sort of centerpiece of the Good Friday Agreement, that those East-West relationships are also strands of that agreement. That uh, their involvement or is also really part mm-hmm. of the piece. And I think that the amount of engagement that there has been in the East-West structures that flow from the Good Friday Agreement perhaps hasn't been uh, as good as it could be. There's also a little bit of uh, you know resistance from unionists uh, around engaging uh, with the Dublin. Government. Government, they don't, you know, want the Dublin government to have yeah. an involvement in, in how Northern Ireland affairs go, and obviously there's a, you know, no love lost between Sinn Féin and, and any British government. So it is, just, it's a big sort of melting pot, and, and you know, it, it, it can be difficult to, to try and explain. And part of my job, you know, I mainly work. Uh, for outlets, um, you know, nationally and internationally. And I feel as if I have to do a lot of condensing down and breaking down the complexity of us. You know, I always say Belfast is the centre of the universe. We're very obsessed with ourselves uh, and we can feel as if we're not paid enough attention from Dublin or from London. And, you know, to a certain extent, I understand why there isn't the same level of understanding of the sort of nuances of Northern Ireland. You know, I was interviewing a young girl uh, the other day for a feature that I was writing and she's had to move from Derry to Southampton for work because there's no opportunities where she lives. And she said it's very clear to her from living in England, and I think she studied in England as well, uh, that, that quite a lot of people in Britain aren't particularly interested in what's happening in Northern Ireland. And she also said that, you know, she's encountered people who don't know that Northern Ireland is part of the UK. So I suppose it depends who you ask. You know, they'll be very committed Unionists or people within Britain who who do understand Northern Ireland very well, and obviously the family links and you know our family trees are all sort of um, intertwined. Uh, but it's, it's it's the same with anything. You know, you could find the same thing in Northern Ireland about what's happening in Britain. You could find the same thing in Northern Ireland as the other side of the border in Ireland, and vice versa. So I think that it's been to an extent designed that way. But also it, it's up to people to, to educate themselves. But I, I try to do my best to explain us uh, to, to anybody who's going to listen about that. And certainly there's a lot of goodwill and a lot of interest in what's happening. But we can't just be of interest when we're being disruptive. Now, do not adjust your podcast provider. We're going to talk about the death of Prince Philip and the future of the monarchy with, uh, oh God, what now, royal correspondent Ian Dunt, who is on the eighth day of his vigil outside Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Fucking awful. Every time. Every time. But first, Minnie, if the TV ratings are anything to go by, the British public really are a lot less concerned about maybe the monarchy or maybe it's just Prince Philip himself than certain newspaper commentators wish they were. But, I mean, are we just sort of kidding ourselves to imagine that there might be some kind of turning point on support for the monarchy, do you think? 
I mean, I don't think it's as simple as um, British people stopped watching repetitive coverage and therefore don't care about the monarchy. I think it's um, it's far more likely to be that the coverage was really boring. There's loads of different ways to watch things on TV now, which didn't exist at the time that, say, the Queen Mother died, and that people feel like they know a lot of stuff from watching The Crown. <laughs> so um, to me, it kind of what that actually says is that the BBC protocols need to be modernised and updated to reflect new habits. And, you know, I don't think we are anywhere near a turning point. You know, it's not that long ago that kind of Jeremy Corbyn and his, you know, very public opposition to the monarchy went down like a sack of shit. So, you know, I don't think (laughs) we're close to it. Um, But Keir Starmer says the monarchy is the one institution for which the faith of the British people has never faltered. But, I mean... You know, I, I did a bit of history. Uh, we did very much chop off a king's head at one time. Does Elizabeth's extraordinarily long reign make any change to the monarchy unlikely in our lifetimes, do you think? I mean, I don't actually know what he meant by that or even why he know. said it. I just actually assumed that Ian had briefed him. But well, um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that... Um, a lot of sentiment and kind of support for the institution is actually intrinsically linked to the Queen. You know, there's been a load of negative coverage of the royal family or or at least controversial coverage of the royal family. And largely the public have solidly backed the Queen, even where there has been critique elsewhere. But I think the next monarch will have their work kind of cut out for them in maintaining that support. And and maybe the end of her reign will mean some kind of space for conversations like, what is the monarchy for? How much does the British public spend on the monarchy? Do we really want Charles on our banknotes? Exactly. (laughs) But I don't think that that's going to lead to significant change anytime soon. So we spoke about Philip's um, racist comments on the bunker this week. Um, And a man who has also previously made racist comments, Boris Johnson, has defended the Duke's uh, jokes. I'm putting those in quotation marks um, because they were from an older man, you know, who just wanted to break the ice. Does it reveal a sort of a pervasive stereotype about old people in this country that they're just sort of stuck in their way or, you know, times were different then and, that you know, that they're kind of unable to or unwilling to sort of keep up with the times and and what's acceptable to say and not say yeah I mean I hate this it's been the worst part of I mean it's probably one of the worst parts of the culture war in general and I I will answer the question but just the concept that being so utterly obnoxious and rude to people breaks the ice it's just so ridiculous that that is even something that would happen in in a real setting I'm quite unforgiving of the whole, uh, oh, but they're from a different generation, because I personally feel that if you're alive now, then in a lot of ways, you're of this generation and can access a lot of information and um, should be able to understand a different context to the one that you grew up in. And also, there are definitely a lot of older people who opposed racism, sexism, homophobia a long time ago and and still do now so I'm not saying that we don't all have things to learn and that things don't change quickly around us I just think that age or or that kind of framing is massively used as a way to excuse behavior that is really detrimental to people. Ian is there anything political that we've learned from the Duke's passing? Yeah I I mean I think that they (sighs) They sort of, the, the royal family sort of function like this kind of warped, gilded, 
funhouse mirror <laughs> of ourselves. You know, so like, you, obviously, their lives are fundamentally insane. Like, you know, the level of wealth, but also the level of sort of surveillance and of the restriction by tradition. There are there there are no other humans, really, even other royal families that really function in the same way that they do. These are very unique lives. But if you look at them and cut them sort of down by generations, you do see the broad trends. I mean, I, t- I take Minnie's point, but also I think, you know, the way in which he speaks was much more indicative of, of people in his generation, sort of the war generation. And then you see, you know, the divorces that came from their children's generation, Prince Charles's generation, were pretty indicative of what was happening in society at large, with, you know, the, the sort of boomers being kind of just this kind of jangling shocking social freedom that they found and the yearning that kind of comes from that and the uncertainty. And then I think if you look at William and, and Harry, you see the same sort of thing, you know, I mean, obviously Harry, you know, is currently embroiled in a dispute with the family over sort of equality and representation, which probably isn't that different. I mean, obviously it's in this elevated, bizarre way, but it's ultimately the same as a conversation that you would have, uh, you know, around the sort of Christmas table between, you know, the granddad and the grandson, you know, talking about politics in that sense. And even William has a sort of comfort talking about sort of mental health and your emotional state that obviously, you know, you, you don't get the sense that Prince Philip would have, <laughs> would have had that. Um, so like, there's something political in that when we, when they pass away, what what's really happening, I think, and the things people, because obviously it's, you know, it's absurd to pretend that anyone's personally upset you know you've never met the person i don't think that works it's that they they represent this kind of like i said this kind of warbled version of ourselves and we see an age past with good bits and bad bits there's a lot of bad and we talked about the racism with the bad part i think with with some of the aspects of of what it is to, to think about private emotion that isn't necessarily a bad thing obviously to get away from the stiff upper lip stuff of never show emotion publicly you know never grieve publicly but also that it not everything needs to be demonstrative you know we live in a period where people really do that a lot where there's this real sense of to express your joy your enthusiasm your sadness your outrage all the time and actually that sense of private emotion and and keeping things rather more tucked away does have something to say for it you know as long as it's mixed in with the sort of emotional healthiness so i think that's there that's the sort of political thing to take as you notice the way that you yourself and society around you has changed by these bizarre talisman that we've erected above us. And on that basis, I think that stuff is political and is kind of quite interesting. Now, the last time there was a coronation, uh, the British Empire still had colonial interests all over the world. So a lot of the conventions that we sort of take for granted as being associated with the royal family are from from that time. And obviously Britain's place in the world is incredibly different and, and much more diminished now. So, I mean, do you think there's any significant appetite that is likely to emerge for constitutional reform before the Queen herself passes? No, no. What to do with the royal family? No, no, not at all. No, no. And and I don't even think, you know, I mean, obviously, like my my views on the monarchy are fundamentally constitutional rather than anything else. But I think for most people, they're not. It's sort of just this just insane soap opera. And and it's sort of, you know, just how much do they, it's a personal thing, really, of, of, of the personalities in it. That's really how they think about it. I don't think there's much push for the constitutional stuff. And I don't even hear much, even from critics of the monarchy, really. I mean, I, I don't know what it would necessarily be, you know, that, that you would impose there. I certainly see no appetite. And I definitely don't think it will happen while the Queen's still alive. And I don't think it will happen. After and you've previously warned Republicans like me to be careful what we wish for. Uh, would we risk the election of a, a kind of a President Farage or a President Johnson if we opted for an elected head of state? 
Yeah, well, that's the fucking, I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, that, that's the danger. Ultimately, and you know, this is the, it's the, I know it's the easy thing to say, but you know, what, what do you replace it with? But ultimately, if they're voted for, you know, just looking at our society right now where we make culture war out of, you know, fucking children's books and, you know, statues. I mean, what do you think to the level of fucking culture war that we would go into over the head of state <laughs> would be biblical and, and quite grotesque, I would suggest. So that'd be terrible. There are other ways of doing it, right? You could have um, like a non-elected, you could say like the most senior person in the civil service or something. It's a lottery. Any one of us could get it. Lucky. <laughs> yeah, like the, you could have the tallest person. You could just say the tallest person at all times is king <laughs> or or queen. Or we could use and a proportionate that, voting system that would hopefully... Exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll be very careful with that. We'll be very careful with the electoral system. But you, you could have that. And for me, that would fulfill all of my kind of constitutional concerns. All I care about is that it's non-democratic. But then my question would be, you know, what you did, like, why? Why would you be spent? Why would you open this massive can of worms to, to, for that, to, to do that? That would be, you know, like in point break, that that would be a waste of time. Because it is a pernicious part of the culture war that is embedding <laughs> social hierarchy within our political discourse. Anyway, moving on, Amanda. I thought I was safe when you were host. I thought the host was like you're restrained and unable to respond. Kind of podcast. Amanda, <laughs> Prince Philip's relationship with Ireland and Northern Ireland were obviously, um, you know, under the cloud of the fact that his uncle, Lord Mountbatten, was killed by the IRA there in 1979. I'm interested to know how strongly loyalist communities sort of felt about him personally. Has much of that come through in the last week? Yes, it really has. It's, it's hugely important to elements within the, the unionist uh, and loyalist community. The royal family is very important to them. You know, I've had to cover many as a royal visit and some, some of the interest there has been is because people are committed royalists. Um, and actually the, the Duke's passing was one of the reasons why the violence tended to stop, uh, when it did, uh, you know, out of respect for the queen and the royal family, but also We've seen the royals play quite a significant role in the peace process here. You know, I'm thinking of the, the, the big moment was probably in 2012 when the late Martin McGuinness, the former deputy first minister and former IRA commander and the Queen, uh, there was a historic handshake between uh, the two of them at the Lyric Theatre. The Duke also shook Martin McGuinness's hand. I don't know whether the, the smile was as broad as the Queen's uh, had been, but that was seen as a really sort of significant moment where sort of Irish Republicans and the royal family were really stretching themselves um, for peace. It depends who you ask of, over whether they're interested in the royals or not. You know, I know when I cover royal visits that some people are interested in the celebrity kind of element, the, you know, what, uh, you know, shoes Kate or Megan's wearing, that sort of thing. For other people, there's absolutely no interest whatsoever. Uh, and for other people, there's there's quite sort of harsh views as well, um, you know, and, and similar views that would that play out across Britain. But certainly the... The royals would mean a lot to the First Minister Arlene Foster. You know, it's extremely important to her. She takes it really seriously. And I think the Deputy First Minister Michelle O'Neill was careful to make a statement to say, you know, that she acknowledged the, the passing of the Duke and that she acknowledged the loss would be felt amongst those people in Northern Ireland of a unionist uh, and loyalist background. So there's there's been a strain throughout of our whole uh, sort of history um, and the peace process of the, the royals being involved all along the way. 
Now, Amanda, you might not know that Ian's favourite royal is Prince Charles. Um, and so for Ian, maybe it was not not the right parent that went. Uh, but uh, the, the succession could still be a decade away, given you know how healthy the Queen appears to be and longevity that the royals seem to have. What's Charles's relationship with the island of Ireland? You know, would he have a challenge picking up his his mother's legacy when coronated? I don't think so. I don't think it would be that difficult for those who are really sort of into the royals um, f- for that to, to take place because that's just what's expected to happen next. But I think that, um, you know, the conversations that are happening everywhere about, you know, the, the purpose of, of the monarchy and what role they can have in, in a modern society, those conversations ha- happen here as well. It's a, it's a tricky one because, you know, a lot of the people here have, have no interest or limited understanding of it. You know, my kind of understanding of, of the royals is through the their the sort of the history um, and the the peace process, maybe through the Duke of Edinburgh's scheme. I know that the, the Duke of Edinburgh's scheme had teamed up with the the President's Medal, President Michael D. Higgins, um, you know, Irish President. There have been a collaboration there as well. But you know, I, it's difficult whenever you're a journalist from Northern Ireland. You know, particularly because I lot I do a lot of radio in Britain. You know, I can be whenever the the Duke passed, I was sort of asked questions and sort of stories about royalty were referred to that I might have. Been been expected to know that I just didn't have any clue about and it wasn't just you know it wasn't because I was avoiding and it's just because it's not part of it wasn't part of my sort of day-to-day upbringing to know all of the different stories so I think that it really depends what community you go to how interested or how emotionally connected people are to the royals here. Now it's time for Overrated, Underrated. Each week we bring two new offerings to the god of content. And this week it's Ian's turn. Ian, tell us, what are you going for? Yes, I feel very passionately about this. Um, It's a newfound passion. My overrated is staying in and my (laughs) underrated is going out. So... Included in staying in is a lot of things that I thought I liked, uh, watching movies, playing board games, um, you know, nice meals with your partner, curling up and reading a book, herbal baths, even fucking, and I don't say this lightly, I say this without, even comics. It's all fucking overrated. It's fucking overrated as fuck. But you know what is underrated? Fucking, like, the most disgusting man you have ever seen on a packed tube sticking his (laughs) armpit into your face when you're going to work, that is fucking underrated and I miss it. The fucking, those kind of hot dog things that they sell on the Charing Cross Road at like <laughs> one in the morning, that fuck knows what they're made out of. That is underrated. And I miss them. I miss them so much. I could weep. The smell of piss in the subway. When you're getting the tube, I, I miss it. I miss it all so much. And I think, I feel like I'm starting to get some hope that it's coming back. So yeah, that's my that's my overrated, underrated. Well, on that note, we've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for But Your Emails, where we choose a question from one of our Patreon backers to pour over. And this week, veteran listener, past guest, Jason Hazley says, insufferable suck-up, James Dyson, was on the radio this week, bloviating about the success of Brexit from his telescope in Singapore. And he said, one advantage was we can employ people from all around the world. Previously, we were only allowed to employ people from Europe. Is he talking out of his overpriced arse, Minnie? 
I mean, this is the very definition of chatting absolute shit. Like it was obviously easier to travel here first and then find work when free movement was in place for for EU nationals. But that doesn't mean that we don't and didn't already employ people from all over the world and they just needed a visa to get here first. And I think, you know, the NHS is an obvious example of where we hire people, um, a lot of people from outside the EU, care work too, farming, agriculture, the food industry. But the reason that he is really just so wrong is because as part of Brexit, the government is actually making it more difficult to apply to enter the UK for work through the points-based system, which is, um, it's largely cosmetic, except that it widens the gap that already exists between low-skilled or or low-paid work and highly-skilled work. So, If he's talking about like hiring a specific type of engineer or scientist, they would have already been a priority before Brexit from outside the EU. So that doesn't make a difference. And if he wants lower paid workers, it's going to be more difficult to employ them for all over. So he's just wrong, basically. I've refused to replace my Hoover with a Dyson. (laughs) You're fucking right, man. They are so shit. Yeah, agreed. They last for like fucking 15 minutes. I used to have to run around the house and obviously you're fucking lockdown. You're doing this all the time. I was running around the house like like I was having some kind of fit. Just like desperately trying to Hoover it before the damn battery stopped. They are shit. And then, but I mean, the hand dryers are more shit. I mean, the hand dryers were an abomination. It was like a competition of trying to trying to get your hands in that thing and that bizarre posture you have to take of sort of cutting them downwards without touching the sides of it in some manky pub, which admittedly now I'm suggesting is underrated. (laughs) We need to do hoovers for the next underrated, overrated. (laughs) I mean, no, it's so easy, isn't it? It's fucking Henry. Henry are the best hoovers. There is no... I agree. (laughs) And I am sorry. I feel genuinely... When I got my new Henry, I was just like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I cheated on you. (laughs) I was so wrong. I went for this attractive model and it just doesn't work. You know, Henry is the way that it has to go. But even if his products were great, and admittedly the hairdryers are actually quite good... Uh, boycott central for for stupid views like that anything else to add for jason's question ian yeah i would like to add the fact that if you hadn't mentioned that that was jason (laughs) i would still have known within the first three (laughs) words it would just be like that's jason (laughs) and that's the show a huge thank you to minnie thanks everyone and ian thank you and our brilliant guest, Amanda Ferguson. Thank you. I've just wanted to say I have a Nilfisk vacuum because apparently professional cleaners use them. Oh, there you go. That's <laughs> it. So all that's left to say is get in, losers. We're going shopping. In the extra bit for Patreon backers only, we take a look at the state of the nation's shopping habits as non-essential stores open their doors again. And that's after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. A big thanks for your support from me to Richard Ryan, Oliver Dean, John, Barbara Burke and Tom Reynolds. Hello and thanks from me to Chris Ellis, Julianne Petoni-Watson, Fossil Games, Sandra Innes-Palmer and Mr John Matheson Esquire. And a huge shout out from me to William Burke, Nicola Ignatovich, R. Madril, Alison Busby and Aideen O'Halloran. Oh God, what now? was presented by Naomi Smith with Minnie Rahman and Ian Dunt. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. 
Art Direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Now, Primark Scream. Should people stop feeling superior about shopping and celebrate it as a great way to keep people in real jobs on semi-decent wages? Queues formed outside shopping centres across England this week as non-essential shops opened for the first time since December. Shopping is often a maligned activity in the views of lots of people, and uh, shots of people queuing up outside JD Sports will always attract scoffing from certain sectors of society. People who think they're above all of that, but then happily order the same stuff from Amazon Prime. Mini, are you a leisure shopper or a necessity shopper? Honestly, this question gave me an identity crisis. I have no idea why I am. I think I um, I flip between because I don't actually care about going to the shops that much and I haven't missed it, but I, I have really missed kind of searching at charity shops and, you know, it can be quite a leisurely activity. And I also have done a significant amount of unnecessary online shopping through the pandemic. So I think I'm just a bit temperamental and it depends how depressed I'm feeling <laughs> I hear you about the charity shops because there's always that element of surprise there because you, you, you know you're not gonna know what's there so yeah definitely looking forward to those opening but but many the notion of like I shop therefore I am it's this sort of very 1990s consumerist uh, notion that you're far too young to to really remember but you can see how powerful it is from the way that lots of young women were you know generally quite upset when it was announced that Topshop um, was collapsing. Do you think shopping is disparaged because it's a sort of perceived as a gendered activity? Yeah, I think so. I think it's seen as a very kind of frivolous activity, especially things like Topshop, with ha- which have clear associations with people like Kate Moss and, and Beyonce. So, you know, kind of the high-end fashion, excessive nature. And I think it, it is really gendered um, because I, I don't know why, but for some pe- reason, people don't really think, okay, we actually do need things like clothes, otherwise we'd all be arrested. And women... Um, oh, cold. You know, exactly. Just very cold. Oh, yeah, that's true. women also obviously do a lot of um, caring responsibilities and often they'll be doing way more shopping for things that children might need or otherwise and that's where I find the conversation really difficult around things like Primark because obviously of course it it represents fast fashion but no more or less so than any other high street brand but at the same time we have to think about kind of affordability in a pandemic and and job losses and and that means people might be prioritizing kind of cheaper clothes that was a little bit of the executive vip personal shopping edition of oh god what now search patreon oh god what now podcast sign up and you will get the show early longer and without ads plus our splendid merchandise too and of course free access to our live zooms we'll see you next week